Hi, Grace. Good to be with you all today. My name is uh, Daniel Long. For those I haven't met yet, would love to meet you. This is an incredible group of people to be worshiping God with, to be following Jesus with. Um, I want to begin with a psalm, and this psalm came to mind while we were worshiping, and I know that um, our King's Quest kids are in with us, so this might be a familiar psalm to you, but I want you to listen to the words that are repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. I wonder if you can actually tell me how many times, King's Quest kids, this specific phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is repeated. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask one of you at the end of this how many times it says it through this psalm, 136, and you're going to let me know. Because you think I'm going to test you, it's not true. I don't know. I need your help to know. All right, here we go. Psalm 136. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who spread out the earth on the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who struck Egypt through their firstborn, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed famous kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to his servant Israel, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, For his steadfast love endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of heaven. For his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. How many times? Who knows? 26. 26. All right, 26 times. So if I was to ask you, What is the point of that psalm? You'd be able to tell me because you heard it 26 times to remind us that God's love is steadfast and it endures forever. That is the God who has called us here today. That is the God who wants to meet with us, speak to us. So it is to that God we are going to pray right now. 
God, you are the one whose love is steadfast and endures forever. Thank you that that is true. You are the God who has come to us in Jesus. Thank you that we can know you and that we can know that you know us. You are the God who is continually and always with us, calling us, guiding us, shepherding us. Thank you that that is true. Help us to follow. Help us to listen. Help us to trust. This morning, speak to us through your word because we want to hear from you. We want to be transformed by you. We need to be challenged by you. And we need to know that you have invited us to be with you and where you go. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of Acts. We're going to continue with that this morning. Now we're actually going to, we're skipping a little bit. So we're still staying, we're about, this, about the halfway point of the book. And we're going to be turning our attention in a couple weeks to the second half of the book, which really focuses on Paul and his journey to the ends of the earth all the way to Rome. Uh, but these, these two weeks, this one we're going to be in chapter 12, so you can turn there in your Bibles. And we're going to look at, at something specific in the life of the church, specifically persecution and God's work there. And then next week we're actually going to go a little bit backwards to Acts chapter 10, and Steve Porter's going to talk to us a bit about Peter and the revelation and his ongoing conversion in that chapter. So this morning, Acts chapter 12 if you want to turn your Bibles, we're going to look at this really, I think, beautiful, convicting for me piece of the story uh, that I think I remember as an idea, but then actually spending time in the text was very challenging, but very beautiful. So we're going to spend our time there in Acts chapter 12. And I think that this book, or sorry, this passage, this chapter, is wanting to remind us of one specific thing, and it's this. God's work and word will endure. God's work and word will endure. That is the good news of this morning, that God's work and word will endure, even in the face of tremendous suppression or oppression and the forces that are trying to thwart what God is up to. So as we think about that, God's work and word enduring this morning, and we look at Acts chapter 12, I think this chapter is, is wanting to answer three different questions or explore three different questions. And here are the questions. Whose kingdom, whose hand, and whose word? So whose kingdom are we dealing with here? Whose hand is ultimately the one who has authority and the ability to judge? And then whose word will really last? Now, the Bible is no stranger to having on the scene something like a, com a com competition between God and kings. I mean, we see this in, in all of the Old Testament, that God is constantly competing with the powers of the world. And often the powers of the world are embodied by a person, usually a king, a pharaoh, some sort of person that is the, the antithesis of God working against God. I mean, all over the place, it's like a Marvel movie constantly where you have the Avengers versus Thanos or whatever iteration of opposition there is. So this is like the story of the Bible, and we see this in Acts chapter 12. God is going to be competing with one of the powers of the world, and that power, that name is King Herod. Now, that should remind you, wait, I know King Herod. I know that name. 
And of course you do, because King Herod shows up where? In the Gospels, around the time when Jesus is being born, ultimately when Jesus is going to the cross, this, this sense of opposition shows up again. Now, it's not the same King Herod. Again, this is a name. This is King Herod of Agrippa I. So this is along the line of the, of the Herodian dynasty. But this King Herod, Luke is wanting to set up like, oh yeah, we know what's gonna happen. We remember this type of guy. He's no good. So let's begin in, in Roman, or Acts 12, starting in verse one. About that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. After he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. When he had seized him, verse four, he put him in prison and handed him over to the squads of soldiers to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. Now this is important. So King Herod shows up here, and all of a sudden we are recognizing the two forces that are competing with one another. King, kingdom of this world, and then ultimately, the work and word of God, the spirit of God that we've seen unleashed in the world in the book of Acts. Now Luke is being very intentional to show us what the church is going to endure in the face of this powerful kingdom of the world and how it differs from the power of the spirit. Because we see that the power of the earthly kingdom, what? Is one of laying hands, violent hands, upon some who belong to the church. And we see that he kills, actually, one of these people, James, the brother of John, and then he imprisons Peter. We see that this kingdom, this earthly kingdom, is marked by prisons, marked by, by bondage, marked by shackling. What is going on here is an attempt to suppress the movement of the spirit that God has unleashed through the church in the world. And we are to have our attentions or our imaginations reminded we've been here before. So we see the earthly kingdom. But we also see this spiritual kingdom at play. It's a different economy of power. Because what do the people do when Peter is thrown into prison? Verse 5. While Peter was kept in prison, the church prayed fervently to God for him. That is such a small detail, and it literally changes everything in the text. Verse 5, we have this powerful king trying to suppress the work of God, trying to, killing a, a, a person from the church, James, imprisoning Peter, and then the church prays and nothing stays the same. Verse six, the very night before Herod was going to bring him out, Peter bound with two chains. Now listen, this is trying to show, this is like Herod is trying his best to keep this from moving, keep this from spreading. Peter bound with two chains was sleeping between two soldiers while guards in front of the door were keeping watch over the prison. I mean, this is a little excessive. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He tapped Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his wrists. 
And the angel said to him, fasten your belt and put on your sandals, and he did so. Then he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Peter went out and followed him. He did not realize that what was happening with the angel's help was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. Now that's just funny. So here's the thing that's happening in the jail cell, right? He's, so Peter has two chains on his hands. He's sleeping between two guards. He's chained to two guards. There are guards outside of the prison. And then all of a sudden, a light comes into the cell and his chains fall off. The angel needs to wake him up. It says that he wakes Peter up and says, come on, get your cloak on, get your sandals, we're going. And then all of a sudden, Peter's like, oh, maybe this is actually happening. After they had passed the first, this is verse 10, after they had passed the first and the second guard, they came before the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord, and they went outside and walked along a lane, when suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent an angel and rescued me from the hands of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. Now, here's what's really beautiful about what Luke is doing in this text. He begins this text by saying, King Herod is laying violent hands upon the church. He, he kills James, he imprisons Peter, and then the church prays. And then something miraculous happens, begging the question, whose kingdom is really operative here? Is it this earthly kingdom of power embodied by King Herod or is it spiritual kingdom, this, this kingdom that has been unleashed because of the Spirit of God and the presence of Jesus in the world, which one is actually more operative? Which one is the real powerful kingdom? Well, in this sense, we see that absolutely God is winning. His kingdom is the one that is stronger and more operative than the earthly kingdom of Herod. We see this because of this divine disruption, this divine intervention, this interruption into the way that things are. God's work and word will endure. No matter what tries to stop it or keep it from happening, we are talking about God's kingdom unleashed in the world because of what he's done in Jesus, dying, being raised again, and in the spirit unleashed in the world. There is more than what we see. God's work and word will endure. So crazy is this disruption, this intervention in the world, that people don't even believe it. First, Peter doesn't. He thinks he's just seeing a vision. But then the angel has to do these crazy things, and he's like, oh, okay, this is absolutely real. And then the text just gets funnier. So as soon as he realized, verse 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many had gathered and were praying. When he knocked at the outer gate, a, man, a maid named Rhoda came to answer. On recognizing Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that instead of opening the gate, she ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the gate. Again, that's just funny. So Peter comes, he knocks at the gate. He's speaking to this maid, which we imagine is through some sort of door. She hasn't seen him yet. She's so excited about hearing Peter's voice, she doesn't even open the door. She goes to tell other people. Then we see what happens. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she insisted that it was so. And they said, it's his angel. Meanwhile, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the gate, they saw him and were amazed. And he motioned to them with his hand to be silent. It's like, shut up, come on, I just, I just escaped from prison. Don't make such a commotion. 
He motioned to them with his hands to be silent and described for them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he added, tell this to James and to the believers. Then he left and went to another place. See, so crazy is, is this kingdom breaking into the present in this moment that Peter is not prepared for it, nor are the people prepared that he is going to. The people who prayed to the God are not prepared that God would work in this way. They knew what to do. They knew where the economy of power resided because if God's kingdom truly is operative, then we are to pray. But that does not prepare a person for those prayers actually being answered. They are totally surprised. They cannot believe it. They won't even open the door. Then they won't even believe the woman until they see him. And then, of course, they cannot be quiet about it. I just love that. I love that what we see here, these two competing kingdoms... We know this kingdom of God unleashed through the spirit in the world is the kingdom that is operative and will ultimately win. And yet these people who are praying that God's kingdom would come in this way are so surprised when it's actually happening. So wondrous and amazing is God's intervention in the world that it's sometimes hard to believe. And yet it's true. And it happens. So whose kingdom? The answer, of course, for Luke is... God's kingdom, that is the landscape on which we are bearing witness to the work and word of God. And it is because that kingdom has come and will continue to come that God's work and word will endure. Now I wanna make a comment about persecution because this, this, this is raised here, right? We see that King Herod lays violent hands upon some who belong to the church. Now when I read that, I honestly could not help about, but think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Now, it's really tricky for me, and it feels very complex for me in a North American church setting to talk about persecution, because I have not experienced it. I have not endured it. We have not experienced or endured it in the way that our brothers and sisters in other places in the world have. And yet, this text speaks to something beautiful about the reality of persecution and the church's at large's response to it. Now, to help me sort of understand and wrap my mind around what persecution might feel like and what even like what it means to think about God in light of that, I came across this wonderful Nigerian theologian who was, who was speaking about some of the persecution that the northern Nigerian church faced, and he has these beautiful things to say about what the church of suffering persecution and even the resources and the hope that they find in the midst of it. And he says this, the suffering God does not help by his triumphal power, but by his power of vulnerable love. Such a God who suffers helps, who suffers helps through experiencing, through, sorry, through expressing his unconditional love on the cross for the ungodly world. It was through such love, even unto death on the cross, that the triune God conquered his enemies and communicated this unconditional love to the church in the Eucharist, in communion, to live out in the midst of its suffering. Thus, the crucified God is not an outsider to the church's suffering. God is deeply involved. God will, in due course, bring the persecution to an end and eventually wipe away the tears of the church. He continues, the global communion of the church, that includes us, involves reciprocity and mutual sharing of one another's joy and burden informed by the sacrament of the altar. 
There is no true global communion in the body of Christ apart from this mutual sharing. This means that as a part of the global communion, the persecution of the church in northern Nigeria, let's think Afghanistan, is invariably persecution of the church anywhere. Terrorism against the church somewhere is terrorism against the church everywhere. Now, I'm convicted by these, by these words about this person who is no stranger to persecution, and I'm convicted by verse 5 that while Peter, while the church was suffering great persecution, the church prayed fervently to God for him. And I can't help but think that that is a word for us, that while our brothers and sisters suffer in other parts of the world and are being persecuted for their faith, we must pray fervently for them. We are called to pray fervently for them. And this text reminds us that when the church prays, because we are operating in the kingdom of God, things happen. And they may not happen in the most miraculous way like we read in, 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 Acts, in Acts 12. But what they may happen is the way that Ibrahim Beatrice is speaking of, which is the suffering God is made known in a way that is undeniable and completely palpable for those people who are suffering. So let us be people who pray, because whose kingdom are we dealing with? God's. So then the second question, whose hand? Whose hand of ultimate authority and judgment is operative? I'm going to start in verse 1 again of Acts 12. Now, about that time, King Herod laid violent hands upon some who belonged to the church. He had James, the brother of John, killed with the sword. Then as we continue into the text after Peter is rescued, we see that when morning came, verse 18, there was no small commotion among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and could not find him, he examined the guards and ordered them to be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now, King Herod, this, we cannot miss this, what Luke is doing. He laid violent hands upon the church. He is assuming ultimate authority of, over people's lives. He is then like, ordering that these guards be killed. The question of, well, who has the ability and the power to take life? Who has that type of authority and judgment? Well, of course, in the text, it's King Herod. Who else would? Whose hand is ultimately most powerful? But then the text continues. See, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, so they came to him in a body, in a body of people. This is verse 20. And after winning over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for a reconciliation because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the platform, and delivered a, a, a public address to them. The people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. That is graphic. I know. I heard, ew, that's the right response. Um, so what's going on here? Well, in the same way that King Herod assumed ultimate authority and power to take lives in this text, ultimately, we see that the one whose hand has ultimate authority and judgment is even over the one who thinks they have the ability to do that. Who has the ultimate authority and judgment? God. How do we know this? Because the person who thinks that they can take life, his life is ultimately taken. He cannot run from the reality and the power of God's hand and judgment. I mean, this is, this is 
powerful. And this is such a moving moment for, I think, the church, and in particular, the church who suffers, who suffers deep tragedy and persecution. Because the question is, where is justice? Where is judgment? And it takes far too long often for those things to be seen and experienced in the world. But this text shows us that ultimate authority, ultimate justice, ultimate judgment finds itself in the hand of God. When we read that text in Psalm 136, if you remember, there's this moment where, where they, they, are, they are recalling what God did to Pharaoh in Egypt and that by his right hand, he led the people of Israel out of slavery. That idea of, of power and authority really in, in connection to the hand of authority is all over the biblical text, and it's here. And it's a, a word of hope, I believe. Caution, certainly for those who think they have the right and ability to judge, but also hope for, for those who see themselves as being judged, as being oppressed, as being persecuted by others. Now, Jesus speaks to this in Matthew 10 when he actually sends his disciples out the first time, and I want to read from that, starting in verse 16. And eventually, there'll be a slide that catches up with where I'm reading. Matthew 10, 16. See, I'm sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues. It's amazing to read this verse and think about it in light of what the church will end up facing in the book of Acts. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I tell you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Then it picks up in 10 to 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So this, this, this message of hope to those God sends out, Jesus sends out, becomes a message, the same message of hope that is experienced here in Acts 12 that we see, that we're, that we're to understand and recognize that it's written for the church to remember, facing intense persecution, the word and the work of God being suppressed. No, 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 no. Do not fear those who can kill the body. Remember whose hand is ultimately in charge. So finally, the question, whose word? Whose word will endure? Whose word will last? I mean, again, Acts 12, 22, or 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the platform, and delivered a public address to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a god and not of a mortal. And immediately, because he had not given the glory to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, 
and he was eaten by worms and died. And then verse 24, but the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. See, the juxtaposition here is so intentional. Luke is saying, look, here's King Herod giving this public address. So beautiful and remarkable are his words that people cannot help but say, the voice of a God, not of a mortal. And yet this word, this voice cannot last. And then verse 24, but the word of God continued to advance and gain adherence. I mean, this is powerful stuff. Because we hear a lot of words. We hear a lot of power. We hear a lot of like oratory brilliance. And we think, oh, man, those people, those powers, they must, they must have the word that endures. They must have the word that will last. No, the word of God. The word of God is the one that continues to advance and to gain adherence. The word of God is the one that endures, that keeps going. And again, that is a word of hope for the church when it just seems like God's kingdom is ceasing to advance, that it's not continuing. No, God's word will last. That is our hope, that the word of the Lord endures, that his love endures forever, and it advances and it gains adherence. So here's some of my final thoughts and perhaps some exhortations. I mean, first, it's just an exhortation to be strong in the Lord. There are so many reasons to think that the church is losing. And by the church, I don't mean like the organizational church. I mean the church as formed by God, called by God because of Jesus. That it's losing steam, or it's losing relevance, or it's just kind of going backwards. Everything in the Bible, everything in this passage, speaks against that despair. Because the work and word of God endures. The love of God endures forever. See, in our limited sense of perspective, it's easy to think because of persecution, because of what's happening in places like Afghanistan, that a place like that is lost, or places around the world will be lost. It's easy to think because the church continues to feel like it's losing power in culture or power in society, that something bad is happening, or because it's, being de it's decreasing in popularity, or because people have an air of suspicion on leaders or, or the church and what's going on behind closed doors. Certainly because of poor examples and leadership. Or because of people losing faith. Or people not coming to faith. We don't see any new conversions. There are so many reasons, truly, in our limited perspective to think that bad things are happening to the church. But here's the good news. God's work and his word endures. His word advances and it gains adherence. That is the good news that we have. The good news is that the spirit of God, because of Jesus, has been unleashed in the world and we have been caught up in that and we are called to bear witness to it. And there is nothing stopping it because it's not us. 
It's God and his spirit. Ephesians 6.10 says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And because this battle is cosmic and spiritual, God will win. Romans 8.38 says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because whose kingdom are we dealing with? God's. Whose hand has ultimate authority and judgment? God. Whose word will endure? God's word. The God who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus whose death and resurrection has changed everything, whose power in the spirit has been unleashed in the world, has caught us up in that and is moving us so that we can bear witness to this good news in the world. The kingdom of God is here and it will continue to come until all things are made new. And so notice, notice the weapon, so to speak, in this text of the church. It is not gaining more power than Herod. It is not gaining more popularity or a better following. It is not vengeance. It is not more violence. It is prayer, actually, in this text. That is what changes everything. A church praying because they know whose kingdom they're operating in, they know whose hand has ultimate authority and judgment, and they know whose word will endure. So my question to you is, are the questions raised by the text? Whose kingdom? Whose kingdom are you operating out of? Do you believe is operative in the world? Whose hand do you, do I, do we think has ultimate authority and judgment? And then whose word do we think will endure? Those are our questions as we attempt as a body, as a people, as a church in the world to follow Christ and his work in the spirit in the world. May we be people, may we be people who trust and believe and live in such a way that we can answer yes or God, yes to God to all of those questions. I mean, thanks be to the God whose kingdom has come and will come fully. Thanks be to the God whose hand is ultimately and authority, and the one who will judge. And thanks be to the God whose word will endure forever. Mm -hmm.